Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca again. Welcome back to the Perinatal Stories Australia podcast. I just want to start by saying a big thank you for all the incredible feedback so far on episode one. To anyone who messaged me privately or rated the podcast or shared it to their Instagram stories, the love I've been shown has blown me away and your support means so much to me. So thank you. In this episode, I'll be sharing part two of my story, but don't worry, this will be the last episode about me. Going forward, you'll hear some really powerful stories from some seriously incredible mothers. For now, though, I'll be taking you on my postpartum journey. Last episode, I spoke about the severe anxiety I had through pregnancy, and this fear of birth I developed in my third trimester. So if you missed that episode, go back and give it a listen. Like my pregnancy, there were so many little things compounding during postpartum, one on top of the other. But unlike my pregnancy... This time it was happening at a much faster and scarier pace. So much of what you actually hear in this episode will be from my first two weeks of motherhood, because that's when my anxiety reached crisis point. That's how quickly things unfolded. I was only 12 days postpartum when I presented to a mother and baby psychiatric hospital, also known as an MBU. There were many ways I imagined motherhood, and while I tried to prepare for the worst, I never imagined this. I now know what people mean when they say, reality is stranger than fiction. I wouldn't believe it if it didn't happen to me. And it's definitely not the story I ever imagined telling about motherhood. But it's mine. It's my very messy story that I'm still trying to understand and piece together, even now, over a year later. This part of my story has been the hardest to share, because truthfully I think I still carry a lot of blame for not managing my anxiety in pregnancy. I was so worried about being traumatised or dying that I fixated on trying to control everything. And by doing this, I can't help but feel like I manifested my own mental breakdown. Which logically isn't true. I know it's not my fault. (laughs) It is an illness. But it's still hard to shake the feeling that maybe somehow I could have prevented all the horrible things to come. So before I dive in, I want to say thank you in advance. Thank you for being here to listen to this part of my story parts that I've never spoken about before, parts that I'm still trying to make sense of, and that I'm trying to own, even though it's the story I never would have written for myself. After my son was born, when we were out of theatre and in recovery, I felt a small sense of relief, because birth, that thing I was so petrified of, was finally over. I gritted my teeth, I pushed through the panic attacks, I survived, and I survived what I thought was the worst of it. I guess there was a part of me that thought, or hoped, that if I just got through the birth, then maybe my anxiety would get better. Obviously mental health doesn't work that way. Immediately after my c-section, my health anxiety just exploded. I fixated on every possible complication. Blood clots, oozing, hemorrhaging, scarring, sepsis, eclampsia, all of it. 
I asked every nurse to check my obs, just in case, and to reassure me that I wasn't sick or dying, because my own body felt so foreign to me. I felt really fragile, and thought, or I was sure, something bad would happen. In spite of all this, I still bonded with my son, breastfed easily, read his cues, and it felt like being his mum was coming naturally. So for less than 48 hours, I actually thought that maybe we'd be okay. What I didn't expect, though, was this pullback. And by that I mean this feeling of my mind and body being dragged back to the state of fear and panic I felt during my C-section, and getting trapped there, in that constant state of fight or flight, life or death for weeks. I didn't know it at the time, and even until many months later. But this was birth trauma, specifically PTSD. Even though it was a textbook and uncomplicated birth on paper, it still felt traumatising to me, and I don't use that word lightly. Like I said last episode, my body was in that room, but my mind was trying so hard not to be, and I really didn't anticipate how much of an impact this would have on me, and it's something I'm still confronting now, 16 months later. My son wasn't even two days old when this started. It was around 2 or 3 a.m., I'd just breastfed him, and I remember looking at him. For the longest time, I couldn't stop staring at him. He was just so beautiful. And suddenly I felt, I'm going to call it a glow, this overwhelming rush of oxytocin and warmth and love just flowed through me. I had happy tears in my eyes, everything looked and felt beautiful, exactly like what you see in the movies. I felt so relieved, and I remember thinking that everything would be okay. How could it not be? I was feeling what I was meant to be feeling. No anxiety, just love. And I enjoyed that glow, that feeling of maternal bliss, for 15 minutes. That's how long it lasted. Only 15 minutes. In the coming weeks, I would hold on to that feeling, the memory of that feeling, those 15 minutes, because it was one of the only things that got me through what was coming. When my 15 minutes were over, the warm glow became this fire. All of a sudden, my heart was beating so fast and loud, I could see it through my chest, and my brain was going 100 miles an hour. There was just so much adrenaline pumping through my body, and it didn't feel like a normal panic attack. I went from, oh, I love my baby, to, holy shit, I need to protect this baby, but I don't know if I can. And I was confronted by this fear, or extreme sense of responsibility and inadequacy, because I couldn't stop thinking of everything that could go wrong. I tried to breathe through it, tried to relax and rest, but it was relentless. I was wide awake, I couldn't sleep, and I was just so wired. My heart and brain were racing non-stop, and this didn't go away, not for a few weeks. I know now this was a symptom of PTSD, it's hyperarousal and hypervigilance, but at the time it just felt like a surge of energy. And because I couldn't sleep, I just lay in bed trying to problem solve every possible worst case scenario I could be confronted with as a parent. I panicked about sleep regressions and leaps and teething. My son wasn't even two days old and I was trying to understand how I would cope. How do I wean? How do I introduce solids? What if I forget what I learnt in child first aid? What if I ever stop loving him? How will I ruin him? Would my anxiety rub off on him? What if my husband and I lose our jobs and we become destitute? What if I get sick and can't raise him? What if I injure him in a car accident? How would I feel if my son becomes a bully? How do I forgive him if he turns into a serial killer? Would it be my fault? Nothing. Nothing was off limits. Everything and anything just became something to fixate on and to analyse. 
And I had to problem solve it all. I had to find the answers and urgently so I could prevent those scenarios or protect myself from being overwhelmed if or when these ever happened. I just couldn't stop ruminating on or trying to control things that simply had no answer. While I had this surge of energy, I tried to be productive. I wanted to memorize all the blue book checklists and milestones and immunization schedule. I'm his mum, I just had to know these things. Because the consequences of not knowing everything, or not being in control of everything, just seemed too risky. I tried to fill out forms, organize video calls with family and friends to introduce them to the baby. I had a shower, I got up and walked around, I gave Pudgy a bath, and I wasn't even two days (laughs) post-op. When I say I felt like I was on fire, I mean it. Yeah, I was tired, but my body and mind were just so charged. And I guess there was a part of me that wasn't scared yet, (laughs) because it was high-functioning anxiety to me, as opposed to the debilitating anxiety I had before birth. I think I knew this wasn't going to end well, but I just didn't want to see it. Sure enough, within a few hours, I began to feel very, very tired, kind of like I had a hangover from all the adrenaline. I just wanted to sleep it off, so I cancelled all the calls I'd organised, I closed the baby book I was trying to fill in, and I crawled into bed to try to sleep. And of course I couldn't. My mind was still racing, and I couldn't switch it off. This was also when the nightmares started. They'd been there when I slept the day before, but I kind of brushed it off as a vivid bad dream. But now they were happening when I wasn't even asleep. Every time I closed my eyes from this point forward, I had images exploding behind my eyelids. Like fireworks, which would send a jolt of panic and adrenaline through me. I'd close my eyes again, and same thing. These images or mini-movies could be a plane crash, a bomb falling from the sky, car crash, war zone, cancer, being attacked, anything. My mind was just showing me scary reels on a constant loop. I didn't really know why this was happening. I blamed the pain medication, I blamed some leftover anaesthetic or morphine in my system from the surgery, I blamed myself because I thought maybe I was just catastrophizing. I guess because the nightmares weren't about the birth itself, I didn't pick up on the birth trauma. It just felt like I was going crazy. I was frustrated too, because I was so tired. I knew I needed to sleep. I knew how important it was, and yet I couldn't sleep, no matter how much I tried. I would anxiously count down the time between feeds, fixating on the short amount of time I could potentially be sleeping, and then get so upset the closer it got to the next feed. After a few hours and then days of not sleeping and having nightmares while I was away, I became really frantic, obsessing that I'd never be able to sleep again, and panicking because I didn't want the insomnia to lead to postpartum psychosis. And this just summed up how I spent 48 to 72 hours. Sobbing because I was so tired, trying so hard to sleep, becoming frustrated because I couldn't, and panicking about what this all meant. Sleep became a fixation, and I was really, really scared. And mixed in with all of this were the feeding troubles. As I said, breastfeeding started out okay. There was no pain or latching issues at first. But on day three when my milk came in, I became so engorged that my son couldn't latch anymore. So I needed to be milked by a midwife for about 10 minutes every feed to soften my boobs enough for him to latch. But my boobs would refill too quickly and he'd fall off again. And we'd have to restart the whole milking process while Pudgy was screaming in hunger. Being milked and hearing his little screams were excruciating. I also had to double feed, I don't know if that's the correct term for it, 
but when my son finished feeding and dozed off, I was told by some midwives that I couldn't let him sleep. I had to wake him up and feed him again because he'd taken so long to feed the first time that the clock had restarted. <laughs> it was confusing and I was so frazzled. My fixation on the time between feeds only got worse. And of course he then tested on the cusp for jaundice. And this made me feel more overwhelmed because there was just no way to measure how much my son was consuming. So a lactation consultant had to come help me feed him via syringe. I was constantly being milked. Every last drop was being squeezed out of me to fill the syringes. At least that's how it felt. I think my husband was also struggling to see this all unfold. He saw how distressed I was. I was always sobbing. Our son was screaming in hunger. My boobs felt so bruised. I was in so much pain. And I hadn't slept for at least 48 hours. So yeah, I think he felt quite helpless. It got to the point where he gently suggested formula. Beck, I'll be able to help, then maybe you can sleep, then you won't be in so much pain. Although I resisted, I really wanted to push through. I didn't want to give up so easily. I then found a lump on my boob. I think it was from a clogged milk duct, but I panicked. It just sent me back to what I spoke about last episode, of finding benign lumps on my boobs and having a biopsy and all that uncertainty. I told the midwife the next morning that I just couldn't deal with all this pain anymore. I was so tired and so sore, but she still continued to squeeze my boobs for milk, saying, don't give up, mama. And that's when I really broke. I was screaming in pain and crying as she said this, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I didn't want anything else to do with breastfeeding. I didn't even want to see my boobs or be touched anymore. So I got ice packs to suppress my lactation, and I switched to formula. And that was that. Which wasn't an easy decision, by the way. It's still one that I'm conflicted about. But saying no to breastfeeding, or pumping, or combo feeding, just felt like a way to gain some control over the situation and over my body again. And it was. But it also felt like another part of motherhood that I lost because of my mental health. Because I couldn't handle what other mums could. In a way as well, by not breastfeeding, there was also an exit plan in my mind. There was a part of me that thought, okay, good, if I'm not breastfeeding, then my son won't get attached to me. He won't have bottle aversion. And so then if something does happen to me, if I get psychosis or die or, you know, hurt myself, then he won't be as affected. And it's a really fucked up headspace to be in, to think that way. I didn't want to hurt myself, but I was so scared that everything I was feeling would inevitably lead to that. And I believed my son would be better off without me. And so not breastfeeding was my flawed, backwards way of protecting him, just in case. So at this point I was four-ish days postpartum, and I felt very desperate and frantic to find help and get better before I was discharged because I felt like things were only getting worse. I tried to apply every skill that used to help my mental health, I emailed my psychologist, I downloaded CBT worksheets about catastrophizing, because that's what I thought was happening. I started a gratitude list in my phone, I tried journaling, I was listening to sleep meditations and trying to do mindfulness exercises, anything, anything to help sleep or relax and to make the nightmares go away. But none of it helped. Don't get me wrong, these are all wonderful tools. Although at crisis point I needed other interventions. I just didn't know what that would look like because I'd never been in this acute state before. The staff and my care team really did try their best to help. I can't sit here and blame anyone. Every midwife or nurse just saw me sobbing about, 
getting psychosis and not being able to sleep every time they came into the room. They gave me as much reassurance as possible. One even made me what she called a Rebecca burrito (laughs) to sleep in. There were so many blankets and warm towels, it was just complete comfort. It didn't work, but it was thoughtful. My OB called me on her day off, and I sobbed on the phone with her for maybe an hour. She encouraged me to take a one-off sleep tablet so I could actually sleep. I finally agreed to take it, but I was so scared. I'd never taken medication before. So yes, while it gave me maybe five to six hours of light sleep for the first time in days, my anxiety escalated because I became fixated on the fact I needed to take this medication in the first place, and I didn't want to get addicted or be sedated for the rest of my life. My obstetric social worker was always messaging and came to see me at least twice. She told me, gently, about a place where mothers can go for extra help, and that's the first time I learnt about an MBU. And I didn't take it well, because I didn't want to admit I needed that type of help. I was just anxious, and I was so taken aback by even the suggestion, it made me more scared. The night before I was discharged from the maternity hospital, so about day five postpartum, the social worker organised a consultant psychiatrist to come evaluate me. I'd only ever seen psychologists before, so this was new and truthfully scary. But at this point everything was scary to me. This psychiatrist stayed for three hours, encouraging me to go on antidepressants because nothing else would help in my state. Again, the thought of going on medication didn't make me feel better. This just became another thing to be anxious about, because I hadn't taken medication before, ever, and I'd always been stubborn about wanting to be in control. But of course, as anxious as this made me feel... I agreed, because things were only getting worse, although conceding to medication just added to that sense of failure and brokenness I felt. I was given a really high dose to start with, and was just told to keep increasing the amount on my own every night, until I reached a certain dose. I told the psychiatrist that I was uncomfortable, and that I really wanted my hand held throughout this process, whatever it took, because this was very intimidating. We did have one appointment booked in for three days after, which I'll talk more about later, but I was told to just manage alone without supervision, and it just felt a little careless. I remember my gut saying something didn't feel right, whether it was the medication itself, the psychiatrist, or the way I was left to my own devices with these strong meds, but I also didn't know if it was my gut or my anxiety talking, so I dismissed myself, and given the headspace I was in, I knew I needed help, and I'd take whatever was recommended to me at this point even though it just left me feeling even more vulnerable and scared. I took the first dose of the meds that night, and then I was discharged from the maternity hospital first thing the next morning. I really just wanted to go home, but I was also scared to leave. Home is normally my safe place. It's where I run when I'm anxious. But home didn't feel safe anymore, so now nothing and nowhere felt safe. Not me, not my body, not my mind, not the world. It was like my brain was telling me that I was in a war zone, which was in stark contrast to where I actually was, on my couch, huddled under the blankets. I couldn't stop trembling. I couldn't eat or chew. I barely got a couple bites of food every day. I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. My pupils were so dilated. It's such a cliche, but I looked as crazy as I felt. I really couldn't leave the couch at all. I had constant panic attacks when I had to move from my spot, Even to have a shower. Showers used to be a very soothing experience, but now I couldn't even wash my hair properly because my hands were shaking so much. I couldn't look at my C-section scar either. 
so I'd just stare into the corner of the shower, pretending the wound wasn't there so I wasn't reminded of birth. The water also made my boobs leak, which reminded me I wasn't breastfeeding, something I hadn't come to terms with yet. None of this was meant to happen. I still had all the birth trauma symptoms too, the constant reel of nightmares, insomnia, hyperarousal, intrusive thoughts, anxiety about these symptoms, and constant rumination trying to problem-solve them. On the one hand, I tried to gain control. I downloaded about 10 of the baby apps where you input data about feeds and pees and poos and sleep. I wanted to compare the apps to see which one was the best, and I thought if I could obsess about trends and data, then I'd feel more in control of this mothering thing. But on the other hand, I was also shutting down. Everything felt too much and overwhelming. I couldn't make decisions. I just deferred everything to my husband. I'm normally the one who wants to research and be across everything. But I just couldn't. So I didn't learn how to prepare the formula. I wouldn't run the bath for the baby. I didn't know how to wash or sterilize the bottles. I was just so scared I would do something wrong somehow. So in my mind it was safer to not do anything. To just avoid any responsibility. There was definitely no newborn bubble. I want to talk here about the medication and some of the help and interactions I had during this time. In terms of the good stuff, and there was some good stuff, my mum was there helping me and my husband with Pudgy, and with all the practical stuff. My social worker was in constant contact, she'd also referred me to the local mental health team who were calling me every day to check in on me. I didn't even know she'd done this until they called that first day I was home, but it was nice to have someone checking in every day. I had so many friends and colleagues reach out. The day I got home, a work colleague called me to talk about her own postpartum anxiety and medication. I remember holding back tears, saying, I just don't want to be a statistic. And she was one of the only people who knew what I meant. One of my friends, who's also a nurse, would stay on the phone with me for hours while I cried. My yoga teacher even checked in on me. I really had so many people in my life who cared and who tried to help however they could, even while being isolated because of a COVID lockdown. Then there was the not-so-good help. I'll start with the antidepressants first. These were tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs. So, for some context here, SSRIs are more commonly prescribed, but I was given a type of TCA, which is a bit of an older type of antidepressant. And the logic for this was that SSRIs can increase your anxiety when you first start taking them until you adjust, and obviously my anxiety was already fucked, <laughs> so I was prescribed a type of TCA because they don't increase anxiety at the beginning like SSRIs can. And it was also a sedative, so it was killing two birds with one stone. While it helped with sleep a little, it didn't actually put me in a deep sleep, and sometimes it didn't help me sleep at all, so that was still an issue. It did ease some anxiety symptoms, like the heart racing or the adrenaline pumping, but my depression just plummeted. I felt so hollow and empty and numb. I was told I might feel worse before I felt better, but I've had depression before, and it was nothing like this, which scared me so much more. I say this a lot, but I'm scared of depression. Unlike anxiety, depression feels like it can hurt me, and I felt so much more anxious because I didn't know what that depression meant. There were so many factors compounding all at once. There were the meds, I was a weak postpartum, so those hormones were bad enough, but I was also suppressing my lactation, which just added to the hormonal turbulence. There were the PTSD symptoms, harm-related intrusive thoughts. All I could see in my mind all day were these vivid and scary images of me hurting myself or my son, and I didn't want to do either. So I became very distressed by these thoughts, and tried to problem-solve them, or perform compulsions to make them stop. 
Again, I didn't know about PTSD or intrusive thoughts or OCD. This was all just happening and I didn't know why. So I can't blame the medication entirely, and I have no doubt that the TCA type of medication is helpful for so many. And maybe I just needed to wait longer for them to work. But very quickly, I started to notice something unusual. I would take these meds at night, as I was told, at a high dose, and I would then wake up feeling so low and empty all day. But by the afternoon, I would feel a bit like myself again, anxious and sad, but not empty. Then I'd take the meds again the next night, at an even higher dose, and I'd feel even worse and more empty until the next afternoon. So yeah, after two or three nights of this, I couldn't shake the feeling that these meds, obviously combined with everything else going on, weren't helping me. During this time, I had an appointment with the psychiatrist who consulted at the hospital. It was one of the worst hours of my life. I was sobbing the whole time, explaining how scared I felt, how I felt this all-consuming emptiness, how I was worried about managing the medication alone, especially since it was such a high dose. I didn't know why this was all happening. I wasn't sure if it was the medication or the hormones or if I was just going crazy. I just knew I wasn't well, and this didn't seem like perinatal depression or anxiety. The response I got from the psychiatrist is something I don't know if I'll ever forget. They said, well, it's not the medication, it's not the hormones, it's you. You must be struggling because you idealise motherhood. You mustn't have really wanted to be a mother. I was one week postpartum. To say this comment broke me is an understatement. I didn't want it to be true, so I spent days, weeks actually, doubting whether I did want to be a mum and constantly checking if I loved my son or how much I loved him. It became a fixation that comment just reinforced that my son would be better off without me. Even now, I sometimes wonder if this person was right. I left that appointment feeling worse than I can even put into words. There was no compassion or support, no recommendations. It felt like there was absolutely no hope for me, none. <laughs> I was clearly beyond saving and unfit to be a mother because this psychiatrist couldn't even help me. As broken and confused as I felt, I still took the medication that night, perpetually the good girl who does what she's told. But the same thing happened. I woke up feeling even worse, absolutely empty to my core, pupils dilated, just so out of it. And like clockwork, it all went away by late afternoon. So this is when I had to look for a second opinion. Like I said, I couldn't blame the medication for everything, but there was something going on. That emptiness and despair didn't fit, and it really scared me. So I went to Google, and it mentioned a possible side effect was suicidal ideation. I was sure I wasn't suicidal, but I just kept seeing these distressing images in my mind on repeat, and I didn't know what they meant. I now know that it was harm OCD, scary intrusive thoughts about me hurting myself or my son, but I didn't know this at the time. All I knew is that I was scared of myself because of these thoughts. I didn't want to act on them. I just wanted them to stop. So I went to the GP for help. Unfortunately, it was Saturday night, and the GP on shift wasn't my usual GP. I told them about the scary thoughts, how I didn't want to act on them, but that they wouldn't go away. I told them my worries about the medication, how I kept waking up depressed and empty, and then felt semi-normal by the afternoon. I said I felt like I didn't want to be here or deal with this pain anymore, but I didn't want to hurt myself. I said that's why I was there, I wanted help. The GP said, yep, it's obviously the meds, you're obviously suicidal, you need to go to the emergency department. Just like that. There were no further questions or screening, nothing. The GP just said I'd need to go to the psychiatric unit in emergency so they could wean me off the meds safely. 
Mind you, I'd only been taking the meds for four nights, but he was worried because my dose was so high. So there I was being told I was suicidal because of the meds and that I'd need to go to the psych unit where I couldn't see my husband or my son. My son was seven days old. We were still in COVID lockdown too, so there'd be no visitation. My phone would be locked up too. This was truly the stuff of my nightmares. But I wasn't suicidal, and I told the GP I didn't want to act on these thoughts. But they told me I was, and I didn't have the mental health literacy to say this was right or wrong, or that these were intrusive thoughts. And unfortunately, this is what can happen when healthcare professionals aren't informed about intrusive thoughts or OCD, especially in the perinatal period. And they were the experts, so again, me being me, I was going to do as I was told. My husband, thankfully I guess, had other plans. He absolutely refused to take me to the emergency department, which obviously went against medical advice and my inner good girl who always follows the rules, but he said he'd rather deal with the consequences of me coming off the meds while I was at home with him. His logic was that I'd only been on the antidepressants for four nights and I'd be safer and happier at home than alone and away from my family, scared and isolated in a hospital. And I didn't want to be away from my family, so that's what I did. <laughs> The one rebellious thing I've done in my life, going cold turkey from antidepressants at home. I didn't take the medication that night, and the what-ifs definitely scared me. But I woke up without that deep pit of depression, without the dilated pupils, without feeling so out of it. The relief I felt was indescribable, and I really, really hoped that without the severe emptiness eating at me, I'd be able to focus on the anxiety and nightmares and insomnia, and hopefully get better. But of course that didn't happen, because that emptiness was only a fraction of what I was going through overall. The intrusive thoughts, which I was told was suicidal ideation, they were still there and they were incredibly loud. The anxiety was still so severe, I was still trembling, I still couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, and I still had every birth trauma symptom. The hypervigilance, constant fight or flight, avoidance, the nightmares were still on a loop, whether I was asleep or not and I was still overwhelmed and depressed. Not as bad as when I'd been on the meds, of course. And the best way to explain my state of mind was distressed. Incredibly distressed, because at this point I thought there was no hope. Yes, that specific medication made a bad situation worse, but not being on the meds didn't make me better either. I just kept having these repetitive thoughts of using scissors or knives to hurt myself or my son, and I was absolutely petrified. On the rare occasions I left the couch, if I saw the scissors on the kitchen counter, I'd quickly hide them in the drawers because I thought, if I saw them, I wouldn't be able to trust myself. I also had to stand with my back away from the kitchen knives, pretending they didn't exist, for the same reason. I would also make my husband hold me for hours and hours on the couch, sobbing, while my mum looked after our son, because I was just so scared that if I wasn't restrained, then I could act on these intrusive thoughts. These were all protective behaviours compulsions, part of OCD. But again, I didn't know this. I was just convinced I was going crazy, and the person I was scared of most was myself. After about a day or two of this distress and compulsive behaviour, my husband, he was sad when he said this, but he said, I think it's time I take you to emergency. He'd done a complete 180. My husband is someone who is always super optimistic, he avoids doctors, and has the stereotypical she'll be right attitude. So for him to say, I think it's time I take you to emergency, Beck, it hit hard. But it was also my wake-up call, because I knew he was right, and I knew I couldn't keep going on like this. So I sat up from the couch, still trembling and sobbing, ten days postpartum, 
and I immediately phoned my social worker because there was just one last thing I had to try, one last ditch effort for help before being isolated in the emergency psych unit. And this is when I told her I needed to go to the MBU. Within a few hours, it was all organised. She'd arranged everything, including the referral. I only had to pay the excess. And that was that. I was going to the MBU. I just had to wait for a bed to be available on Wednesday morning, which was less than 48 hours away. It's hardly a wait. But that time period, that wait, felt like eternity. And I was sure I wouldn't make it to Wednesday morning. My heart breaks for mums who need urgent, inpatient care, but are forced to struggle at home, or who have to be isolated in acute psych wards until a bed in an MBU opens up. No mum, who is hanging on by a thread, should have to wait for help. I only had to wait two days, and that makes me one of the lucky ones. I pushed through that day and a half at home, crawling hour by hour, because the alternative was being sectioned in the emergency psych unit. And I couldn't concede to that just yet. I wanted to be with my husband and my baby. So I held on, clinging for dear life, until Wednesday morning. When, at 12 days postpartum, I walked into the MBU, sobbing, with my newborn son asleep in my arms. I'd never even been out of the house with my son. Not even to go for a walk. So our first official family outing also happened to be the lowest point of my life walking through the doors of a psychiatric hospital. That moment would change my life, but I just didn't know it yet. I'll take a minute here to explain a bit more about MBUs. The idea is that both the mother and baby are admitted to the psychiatric hospital, so the mother can be treated while still ensuring she can bond with her bub, and that bub can form a secure attachment to her. The facility is set up to support mothering. There's bassinets, cots, baby baths, change pads, nursing chairs, access to breast pumps if needed, mother craft nurses, paediatricians. It accommodates both of you and your needs. It's also designed to replicate home too. Your partner is encouraged to stay and attend some of the appointments and group therapies so they can learn how to help you, while making sure they look after their own mental health too. There's group therapy twice daily, yoga, art therapy, music and baby massage activities. It's a holistic approach to mental health care. I'm sure I'm glamorising it, I don't mean to. It's obviously still a psychiatric hospital. There's still all the heavy stuff, medication and breakdowns and psychiatrists and social workers and psychotherapists and mental health nurses and emergency buttons on the wall, all that not-so-glamorous stuff. But I truly wish every mother experiencing an acute or severe mental health episode could receive the level of care and compassion and validation and support that I receive from that hospital. The connection I made with the other mums was everything to me as well. That was probably the most powerful part, knowing that I wasn't alone, and that there were mothers who were going through exactly what I was going through. Every morning we did a group check-in with each other, where we'd go around the room talking about our night and how we were feeling so far. Through the highs and lows we had each other, surrounded by the most supportive experts. But I didn't feel this way about the MBU at first. I did feel safe there. When I arrived, I felt a sense of relief. But I was still so conflicted. I didn't want to be there. But I didn't want not to be there. I wanted to get better so badly. But I also thought I was too far gone to be helped. I wanted to be a good, healthy mother. But I also thought my son was better off without me. And I also didn't want to admit I needed this type of help, because I still thought what I was going through wasn't that bad. <laughs> so yeah, there was a part of me that resisted the program for maybe a week or so. 
I was so scared of going on antidepressants again, after my other experience, so I kept delaying any increase in dose. I resisted taking the PRN medication. I didn't want help with my son either. The mothercraft nurses usually look after bubs overnight for about a week, giving them cuddles, feeding them if they're hungry, responding to their cries, all that, so we can just focus on getting some solid sleep. But I felt like I should be doing it all. I know a lot of mums struggle with PNDA because their bub may be colic or have reflux or isn't sleeping or they're premature or they're up for hours screaming. (laughs) But none of what I was going through had anything to do with my baby. He slept and ate well. He was the most chill baby. And it made me feel so guilty because I didn't have a good reason for PNDA, I guess. Other than, hey, I'm broken and crazy. So I wanted to prove I could be a normal mum and do it all myself because... I didn't think I should be struggling with motherhood because I had it easy. So yeah, I didn't take the sleep medication, didn't let the mothercraft nurses help me with pudgy, and I was still having nightmares and would sob all night in bed. I obviously got no sleep that first week because I resisted help. I didn't fully trust the psychiatrists at first either, which is nothing to do with them, they were so lovely and professional. But I associated them with the other psychiatrist, who said I mustn't have wanted to be a mother, And I was scared they'd tell me the same thing, which I obviously didn't want to hear because in my head that would make it true. I also didn't want to mingle with the other mums at first because I also didn't want to accept myself as a real psych patient. As acute and distressed as I was, I naively thought I just had anxiety. I don't belong in a psych hospital. I'll be out of here after a week or so. I'll be weaned off the medication soon enough. I don't need it long term. (laughs) This was all my own bullshit. (laughs) And truthfully, all that resistance and stubbornness and stigma, it cost me. In a recent article, Chelsea Pottinger, who's the CEO of EQ Minds, she wrote about her admission into the exact same MBU. She talked about how throughout her stay, she played the game of which patient is the craziest. But she learned very quickly that every other patient plays that game too. And inevitably, there's a moment when you realize that maybe it's you that's actually the crazy one. And the exact same thing happened to me. I played that game. And then about a week into my stay, I had that confronting moment where I realized maybe it wasn't anyone else. Maybe it was me. I was the craziest one. Or at the very least, maybe I was no less crazy than anyone else there. It was at this point I had to sit down and have a good look at myself. I wasn't getting better. And I wasn't going home anytime soon. And the only thing really stopping me from getting better was myself. So I spoke to the psychiatrist and I said, I know I'm not getting out of here anytime soon, but when I do, I'd like to not have to come back. And they said, Rebecca, you will get better. We've seen it a thousand times before. You just have to trust us. And this was my turning point. I knew then that I had to get out of my own way. I had to let go of any control, any ego, any thought that maybe I'm not as sick as I was. I had to let that all go and take that giant leap of faith. From then on, I did trust them and their process, which was hard, but it was what I needed to do, because this is when I started to get better. This is when I slept and processed some of my experience and made friends and felt more comfortable as a mum. I got my appetite back and learnt more about mental illness and myself and my values. And this is when they were even able to pick up on my OCD and help treat it and educate me about it. I was on the right antidepressants with no side effects. And it was an SSRI after all, which was right for me and my OCD. 
And they even knew how to manage the SSRI anxiety that can happen in that early adjustment period. They put me on another short-term medication. It's going to sound scary. It was an antipsychotic. But at a very low dose, it kept the anxiety down. It's non-addictive and also helps you sleep. They really just thought of everything. They explained everything. They reassured me. They talked me through my concerns and took things slowly at my own pace. Believe me though, letting go and putting your health, your life, in the hands of someone else is probably one of the hardest decisions you can make especially if you've had some not-so-good interactions before. But accepting my situation and where I was, trusting these psychiatrists were actually wanting to help me and wouldn't stop helping me until they got it right, and also starting to see the humanity in myself and the other mothers, that made all the difference. I also started to make some good memories, in amongst all the tears and panic attacks and ruminating, of course. One of my favourite mental health nurses in the MBU. They were all my favourite, to be honest. But with this one, I was having a really rough day, and she was trying to remind me of activities that used to make me happy. But I was really struggling to find joy in anything. So she got a post-it note and wrote down a list of podcasts. They happened to be true crime, and I actually love true crime. And she said, right, she was so firm. Go listen to them, and then come back and talk to me about the episodes. And I did. (laughs) I listened to them and loved them, and I then went back and analysed them with her. And it reminded me how much I love true crime, yes, but also how much I love podcasts. So I ended up finding some new podcasts and shared them with her, and she'd then come back to me to analyse them. I remember just before I was discharged, she ran into the dining room to tell me all about the episode she was up to, and then ran back to the other ward to start her shift. I got back into journaling too. For those who don't know, my background is in English, literature, linguistics, editing and publishing. So returning to writing was cathartic. And like returning back to myself. Art therapy at the MBU was so fun too. I remember walking into the art room. It's so cliche, but it was like magic to me. I felt so inspired, and that was something I hadn't felt in a long time. And it was such a powerful part of my recovery. What I created sucked, of course, but the process itself helped. I'd wander around the room and look at all the beautiful artworks, all the messages of hope written on the walls from past patients. It was just a set time during the week when we all chatted or listened to music and just did something together that wasn't anything to do with what we were going through. I was at that MBU for four and a half weeks, and truthfully I was more scared to be discharged than I was to be admitted. I walked through those doors feeling like a failure, as a mum, as a woman, as a person, thinking I was beyond help and even undeserving of help. But there were such incredible people who helped me believe otherwise, and it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done. But I wouldn't be here if I didn't go to that MBU. And I don't say that lightly. The role this place played in my recovery, I can't even measure. And it will always, always hold a very special place in my heart. I wasn't magically cured, of course, far from it. I was still really anxious in that moderate to severe category, still overwhelmed by motherhood, still bursting into tears at anything, still learning how to navigate OCD, and I was still battling a lot of shame and self-blame. But I was sleeping, and didn't have nightmares anymore, and the distress was pretty much gone. I wasn't in that acute crisis state. So although going home was hard, thankfully it was a very different experience to the last time I was there, because I was in a different headspace, and because the MBU had really put me on a path where I could slowly keep getting better. You know, it wasn't like they wiped their hands clean of me. 
They refer to it as a step down in care. I went from an inpatient to an outpatient. I still had constant contact with the team, and they set me up with so much local support too. I was in touch with my psychiatrist from the MBU, and still am today, and I still had appointments with my psychologist from Gidget Foundation. I also joined a weekly PNDA therapy group. It was something I looked forward to once a week, just learning skills and being able to do something for my own health and matrescence. Now that I was six weeks postpartum, I was able to exercise again. So I did postnatal Pilates and yoga and swimming, and mums and bubs classes too. These meant so much to me, because I was doing something for my own mental and physical health, while also socialising with the other mums who I'd been pregnant with. And this time I could do it with Pudgy. I started writing down my story too, which became one of the only things that helped me process the grief I felt. I had medication that was working too compared to last time. And more importantly, this time I wasn't alone. When all us mums were discharged from the MBU, we didn't stop having our group check-in. We created a WhatsApp chat so we could still tell each other how we were feeling and anything else we were dealing with. And this was something that we continued to do long after we left the MBU. We also made it a priority to keep painting together. It was still during COVID lockdown, and every week for a few months, we'd set aside some time, maybe an hour or two, to just zoom each other and paint whatever from all around New South Wales, just to be together and feel safe and hold each other accountable. And it was exactly the mother's group I needed. It's not the one I planned, but it's the one I needed because I didn't have to put on that brave face, and that sense of connection was just everything to me. So through this combination of therapies, medication, self-compassion, exercise and connection, my anxiety, depression, and OCD symptoms slowly subsided. This didn't happen overnight. It took a long time, at least four to six months, to feel okay. There was a lot of work involved. But with every day that passed, the downs stopped outweighing the ups. And I can now say I'm less anxious than I've ever been in my entire life, which I didn't believe was possible, especially in motherhood. But I'm more patient and more present that need to be in control of everything, to rush, to be perfect, to have all the answers. It's slowly going away. I'm still healing though, and probably will be for a long time. But any moment I get to play with my son or hear him laugh, I guess it just means so much more because I know how close I was to never getting to play with him or hear him laugh. My PNDA journey obviously didn't end when I left the MBU, but it also didn't end when the anxiety or depression or OCD lifted. And I want to talk about two things that have lingered, which I'm still dealing with, even as recently as this week. One is birth trauma, and the other is grief, both of which took me by complete surprise. I'll start with birth trauma, because I still didn't even know I had it, or that I'd experienced postpartum PTSD, until maybe nine months after birth. I thought I had no right to call my experience birth trauma, let alone PTSD, because nothing physically went wrong, but trauma is far more complex than that. I know now that the fear of birth I had in pregnancy, and the panic attacks during the surgery itself, forcing myself to survive and get through it and grit my teeth, that dissociation, I think that's the word, from what was happening to my body, I know now that this was my mind's way of trying to protect me. But inevitably, it was also what led to me experiencing postpartum PTSD. The hyperarousal, the hypervigilance, the insomnia, the nightmares, the panic attacks, the avoidance, the rapid onset of OCD. 
all of it came back to birth trauma for me. And I already had severe anxiety. So this just took that to a whole other level and was the reason why I had an acute mental health crisis so quickly in postpartum. Even when I left the MBU, I still had my wound bandaged. I was meant to take it off after a week or two. I was still getting intense panic attacks when I thought about birth and the scar. I still couldn't even look at it. So the recommendation to massage the scar was just horrifying to me. I was still worrying about what ifs. <laughs> I couldn't even go near anything birth-related without panicking or combusting into tears. Two days after I was discharged from the MBU, I had to return to the maternity hospital for a physio checkup, and my reaction shocked me. I sobbed, hysterically being in that hospital and walking through those corridors, shaking and wanting to run away. It took me to a really dark place because I was back where everything had gone wrong and where I was powerless to stop it. I cried all night, and to make it worse, the next day I had my six-week checkup appointment with my OB, whose office happens to be directly opposite the hospital. And the same thing happened. My OB had to hold me for ten minutes while I bawled my eyes out. And I was a wreck after this, for maybe two weeks straight. Only a few months ago I just happened to drive past that hospital, and I burst into tears. It had been over a year, but suddenly I was sobbing so much that my husband had to tell me to pull over so he could drive instead. It's true what they say, the mind and body remembers, even if we're not conscious of it. A lot of blame came with this. I was so angry at myself for not controlling my anxiety. Truthfully, I still blame myself, and I don't know if that guilt will ever fully go away. Grief was also unexpected and it lasted longer than the actual acute episode that landed me in hospital in the first place. It really started, or maybe I noticed it the week after I left MBU. I was in the shower, and all of a sudden this single drop of breast milk leaked from my boob. My lactation had been suppressed, but this little drop of milk found its way out after six weeks. And I can't begin to explain the tears that I cried. It just symbolised everything I'd gone through everything I lost or missed out on as a new mum. Every hope and expectation of birth and postpartum was represented by that little drop which just fell down the drain. And it was a very painful, symbolic reminder of how much of the experience was tainted by my mental illness. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed for maybe a week straight because I realised I was never getting that time back. Those seven weeks, they were gone. And the story I have to tell about that time was nothing like I imagined or hoped. So I grieved everything. Breastfeeding, the newborn bubble, the fourth trimester, my birth, my pregnancy, all of it. I grieved for everything I'd gone through, and everything I felt was my own fault. At about three months postpartum, my friend had her baby, with the vaginal birth and the breastfeeding and the beautiful newborn bubble. And I was so happy for her. But my heart felt like it broke into a thousand pieces. I cried daily for weeks, maybe close to a month, because I just wanted so badly to go back and change what I'd gone through, but couldn't. The same thing actually happened this week. Another one of my friends had her baby, and again I'm so happy for her, but I just got dragged back to what I never got to experience, all because of anxiety, because of birth trauma, because of me. I didn't cry for a month this time though, only a few hours, but grief takes my breath away because I wish I could have controlled my anxiety. Better yet, I wish I didn't have anxiety in the first place. I wish I got my water birth. I wish I got to breastfeed for six months at least, like I'd planned. I wish I could have just had a normal matrescence, 
that had nothing to do with fear of birth or PTSD or a mental breakdown or a psychiatric hospital. Grief made me do things, a lot of things that probably prolonged my suffering. The biggest one was trying to relactate and re-establish breastfeeding when I was around three months postpartum. This became a fixation. I really wanted to erase what had happened. I wanted a different motherhood journey, one that I could be in control of. So I clung so hard to breastfeeding as the way this would happen. But while relactating is possible, it's not necessarily achievable. Not when you have to pump for 10 to 20 minutes, seven times a day, in between feeds and playing and naps and eating and showering and sterilizing the bottles. You also have to sterilize the pump parts after every pump. So we're talking minimum seven times a day. So it just wasn't happening. But I kept insisting, even if I only pumped once or twice a day, my son also wouldn't latch. He would just scream. He didn't want a bar of it. But I kept trying anyway for about three months. And I tried so hard because this was my way of processing grief and stopping the self-blame. I guess I knew for a long time that it wouldn't work, but I couldn't let go just yet. And that was less about the relactating itself and more about accepting that even if it did work, I could never get that time back. And I had to let go. I had to let go of the belief that I could somehow change the past by controlling the present. And that took much longer to accept. And that pain, that powerlessness, was much harder to sit with. There I was at six months postpartum, confronted with the realisation that there was nothing I could do that would change my story. My very messy story. And I guess that's been a theme of my whole postpartum. Letting go. Letting go of what happened. Letting go of blame. Letting go of my own bullshit. And just accepting my story and finally owning it. And I'm still learning how to do that. I suppose that sums up my PNDA story. But that's not the end of the conversation. Everything on this postpartum journey. Storytelling, healing, validation, self-compassion, connection, community. And a special mental health nurse who reminded me how much I love podcasts. All the pieces of the puzzle just started to fit together. Which is when I started playing around with the idea of a social media community and a podcast to share stories. So no other mum felt alone or ashamed. A place where we can shed light on the support services available or improve our mental health literacy so we can advocate for ourselves. I wake up every morning thinking about Perinatal Stories Australia and I go to sleep thinking about it too. It's my way of letting go, of owning my story, of showing myself the love and compassion I wish I could have shown myself through the dark times. And it's my way of trying to write a new story for all of us. One where every mother can feel proud of themselves, whether they had to use medication or whether they switched to formula or whether they ended up in therapy or in a psych hospital. I want every mother who survived PNDA to be proud of their willingness to ask for and accept help. And I want something to come out of this that isn't just a memory I try to forget. I want to be proud of myself again. And one day I hope my son can look back and maybe be proud of me too. So thank you to all of you to every listener and future guest, for every one of my family and friends for being here, for listening to or living my very messy story with me, and for trusting me to share your stories. More importantly, thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves, and for helping me to rewrite the conversations about maternal mental health. Let's keep the conversations going. See you next time. Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. 
If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.